The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. Well, it wasn't the phone call that I uh, was expecting or wanted. My wife uh, called me and um, told me uh, that I had to get home as quickly as possible. And when your wife tells you that, you, you wonder if there's something wrong with the children or it could be anything. And so I asked what was uh, going on, and, and we, had, uh, we had ordered a treadmill from Amazon, and, and it came with a home a delivery and home install. And However, Amazon and the partnering delivery company didn't tell the guy that he was to install it. And so she called me and said, this guy is really grumpy, and he doesn't want to install it. I need you to come home. Sure. She wants me to smooth it over. I'll do that. So I go up, and I come up to the truck and he eyes me down. Are you the husband? Yeah, I am. Great. I was hoping for somebody a little more husky. (laughs) Come on. So what I said to him is I said, hey, you know, I I might not have have much about me, but whatever I do have, I'm going to give to you 100% to make sure that we get this job done together. And we did it, and he was happy, I was happy, and it was a good end of the, the, the story. Um, you know, I proved to this guy that sometimes um, you don't have to look the part to be the right guy for the right job. And contrast that to an article I came across this week called Looking Up to Leadership. Do you have to be tall to be a U.S. president? And it turns out that regardless of political party, Um, A physical stature is a determining factor on who is going to be voted in to the the presidency. Uh, Political scientist Greg Murray found that the taller of the two major candidates from 1789 all the way to 2012 and even 2016 now, um, won 58% of the presidential elections and received the majority of 67% of the popular votes. Uh, This includes Al Gore, who was taller than George Bush um, in in the 2000 election, where Al Gore won the popular vote and and Bush won the electoral vote. Um, In fact, out of 46 presidents that we've had, only six of them have been lower than the national average for men in height. Leadership Quarterly notes that the advantage of taller candidates is potentially explained by perceptions associated with height, that taller presidents are rated as experts uh, and, and greater at having more leadership and communication skills. And however, our American history, and really history in general, has, has proven time and time again that when it really comes down to when it matters most, height is not that big of a deal. What is the most biggest deal, most biggest, okay, what's superlative here? What is the biggest deal comes down to character, and it also uh, comes down to um, being someone that is, uh, is a quality leader and a quality person. And um, our text today highlights the very beginning of Israel's murky monarchy. And what we're going to find is that it's always best to trust God's way of doing things because, indeed, looks can be deceiving, especially when it comes to leadership. 
And in our text uh, last week, we explained how Israel came to reject God as their king and had instead pressed Samuel in finding them a human king so that they could be like all the other nations. And though Samuel will find them a king in our text today, and he will indeed look the part, the text is meant to help us remember that we can always be lured away by the things that look good and right. But unless we are trusting in God and walking in His will and His ways, our perceptions will eventually let us down. So three things I want us to look at today. And the first is, is that we need to rest in God's ways. We need to rest in God's ways. Uh, Israel had rejected the Lord as their king. And now in, in chapter 9, verse 1, we meet the man whom God will give them to be their king. Now, that ought to sound strange to us, uh, that they would reject God as their king, but yet they still recognize God as the, the kingmaker, the one who finds the king for them. But yet, here we are. And the one thing that we have to keep in mind as we go throughout these chapters and the ones that are uh, to come is that the first king that God provides for Israel is a, a punishment for them rejecting him. So when we see these flaws and these failures, we, we have to understand that God is not making a mistake here. He is not putting someone into a leadership position in order to give them a fair shake and to see how they blossom into a leader or perhaps that God is missing some terrible flaws in this individual. The man that we were introduced to in verse 1 is exactly what Israel was asking for. A king that is like the other nations. Verse 1. There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjamite. And some uh, text here will actually add that he was a man of wealth and a man of power. So this is a, a, a very powerful, noble family in the tribe of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. That word impressive ought to stick out to us. It's used all over the New Testament. It's the word that Moses used when, uh, when God looked upon all of creation and, and every day of creation when he would say, and behold, God saw that it was good. It's that word good, impressive. Uh, it also was translated as attractive or favorable or handsome or the word could even be beautiful. So the writer of 1 Samuel straight out of the gate wants us to know that this king that we're looking for is really like the bachelor of the year. He is the one that all Israel would, would look to. Everything about him commands respect. And when he is presented to Israel as the one who God has chosen, uh, he's introduced in this way in chapter 10, verse 23. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. And so he, 
he stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, imagine if you have uh, a group of children, and I was very tall as a child. I'm about the same height that I was when I was 12 or 13. And so when growing up, I was always this kid that I just sort of stuck out like the, uh, like the corn stalk in a bean field, you know? Uh, you can't miss them. They are uh, able to be seen. People have to look up to them literally and uh, metaphorically. And truth be told, sometimes there are sometimes when I even get in, intimidated today by taller people. I think that's why my dog doesn't like tall people. He's scared of them because they just are impressive in their size. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? Of course they do. How can they not? There's no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So get this, they, they don't know anything about this guy. They haven't seen his resume. They haven't seen him in battle. They haven't even experienced him socially. But yet, because People Magazine made him the sexiest man alive, and the Israel, first Israelite that can ever dunk a basketball, they think that he is the man for the job. And we need to be careful when we're judging such things because we, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but at the same time, when it comes to things such as selecting leaders over various aspects, as well as anything else, it's not the external that we ought to look for. It is the internal. Are they a person of integrity? Are they a, a person who is, uh, who is in love with the Lord? This is God's way of doing things. Now, interestingly, in verses 3 through 4 of chapter 9, we have the, the initial impression of this man that is going to be king over Israel and uh, that he is um, going to be a different kind of leader than he actually becomes. Look in verse 3. One day the donkeys of Saul's father Kish wandered off. Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. Saul and his servant went through the hill country of Ephraim and through the region of Shalishah, but they didn't find them. They went through the region of Shalim, nothing. Then they went through the Benjamite region, but still didn't find them. So throughout the book of 1 Samuel so far, whenever we are confronted uh, for the most part with a son or sons, they are generally rebellious people who pay no attention to what their father uh, wants of them. You think of back in Eli when he was the, the high priest of that time. His sons Hophni and Phinehas, they were the ones that were perverting the, pre the priesthood for their own gain. And just last week we saw when Samuel wanted to uh, uh, put new judges in place, he wanted to put his sons, uh, which were uh, Joel and uh, Abijah. And yet... Uh, we saw that they were men that didn't walk in Samuel's ways. So up to this point, we've seen nothing but disobedient children. And here, Saul seems to be obedient to his father. And we're thinking, man, so far so good. But in the New Testament, when we uh, come across a person's first words, their first words are often an indication of what their character is going to be like. And so in verse 5 of chapter 9, the very first thing that we come out of, we hear coming out of the word out of the mouth of Saul is, come on, let's, let's go back. 
that fear is what is going to shape his identity as a leader. Leaders who are crippled by fear, especially fear of other people maybe usurping their place, are often the most tyrannical. And uh, that happens in politics. We see it all the time. It happens in the business world. And it even happens in the church from time to time. Saul, uh, in Saul, there's also a reluctance to step up while Saul is worried about what his father is going to think. It's the servant that steps up. Look in verse 6. Look, the servant said, there's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us where, which way we should go. He's saying, look, we've come this far. Let's not give up now. We have more options. Let's exhaust all of our options, and then let's go back to your father. But then how does Saul respond here? Okay, well, you know, suppose we go. Suppose we go to this man. What are we going to take him? We don't have any food. We don't have any money. There's nothing to give to him. What are we going to do? There's no faith. And it's ironic that the future king is actually following and being led by his servant. Verse 8. The servant answered Saul, Here, I have a little silver. I'll give it to the man of God. And he'll tell us which way we should go. And so there's, there's some things that transpire. And uh, after Samuel ends up anointing Saul in chapter 10, verse 1, and after the Spirit of God even comes upon Saul and changes his heart, he is still unwilling to assume the position that uh, he has been empowered by God. And when he finally makes it home, verse 14 of chapter 10, he runs into his uncle and his uncle says to him, you know, where have you been? Well, I went to go look for the donkeys, Samuel answered. When, they, when we saw that they weren't there, we, we went to Samuel. Tell me, Saul's uncle said. What did Samuel say to you? And Saul told him, you know, he, he, uh, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. And, Samuel, and, and Saul did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. It's a pretty significant detail to leave out, don't you think? Israel's been looking for a king for centuries. He was just anointed king by Samuel, the famous seer, the famous prophet. I'm just going to keep this in to myself. When Samuel gathered all of Israel together to introduce this king, Samuel uh, announced his name, And amongst the crowd, nobody can find this guy. In verse 22, the people ask him, where is this guy? Where where is this king that we're looking for? And finally, uh, it says that the Lord replied, there he is. He's hidden among the supplies. So here's a man that is being presented as the king of God's people. The mighty king. And he is off hiding. Can you imagine if two weeks ago when, uh, when Queen Elizabeth passed away and they were ready to crown Charles as king, they ran around the, uh, uh, I don't know, where does he live, Buckingham Palace and 
Well, where is he? Where is he? And one of his servants said, oh, yeah, he's, he's off in that closet over in that spare room hiding. And he went and found King Charles, and he's cowering, saying, I really don't want to go and meet the people. They would look at him as a coward. But yet, he shows up. They basically carry him up front, and then they shout, Long live the king! And to cap all this off, when the big event is over, Saul goes home on his way. And on his way, there are some guys, and the text calls them wicked men, and they probably were, but I would venture to say that they also had the most common sense out of really anybody in this whole story. In verse 27, they see him and they say, how can this guy save us? I mean, this guy? Really? And they despised him. They not, did, did not bring him a gift. And here's the punchline that, that sums up everything that we've looked for then. But Saul said nothing. That's his character. It is the weakness of his character, and it is the foreshadowing of what his leadership is going to be like. His lack of confidence and his unwillingness to let, uh, to his willingness just to let other people take the lead shows him who he, shows us who he is. And this is the man that people wanted. This is the outpouring of what we looked at last week, that when we pursue things that go against God's will and his ways, he may in fact provide those things for us in order to show us our foolishness. And sometimes God will say yes to us in order to discipline us. Conversely, God sometimes shows his love and faithfulness by saying no. And not giving us those things that, um, that we want. And the point the author is making here is that we need to be careful in our appointment of leadership, but also we need to be very careful in our individual lives in being diligent and obedient to God. Even if we don't like or agree with what he says and has for us. We don't want to have God to have to discipline us for our foolishness. But when he does, we have to see that it is an extension of his love for us. And the second thing we should see here is God's hand in the details. We should see God's hand in the details. When we read this passage in light of the context, we, we can come away from it believing something that's not true about God. It'd be really easy to walk away from this and see God as, as reactionary. That he sort of lets the chips fall uh, where they will, and then when things sort of go awry, then he is there to sort of put the pieces back together and will then work and respond accordingly. The people reject him as king, so he's going to respond by sending this guy Saul to them. This is the view that would say that God just simply looks down the sands of time, sees all what's going to happen, and then he will just adjust his plan accordingly. This isn't the God of the possible. It is the God of plans A, B, C, D, and maybe even E and F if he actually needs it. 
But that's not how God has revealed himself in Scripture. It's an unbiblical view of God. Rather, this text delightfully points us to the fact that God is intricately working every single detail in our lives, even the unpleasant ones, in order to, uh, for, our, for his purposes of redemption and for his glory to be made known. In theological terms, we call this the providence of God, God providing for us and God directing all these things for us. The beginning of chapter 9 is mostly a narrative, which means that it's a retelling of a story Saul's dad lost his donkeys and Saul went to go find them and they went all over this particular region in verse 5 of all the places that they could have wandered off to they just happened to end up in the same region of where Samuel lives. Well, if you remember our, our study in the book of Ruth a number of years ago we, we said that there really are no coincidences in the Bible. And there's no coincidences in life either. They came to this very place because God had directed them to go there. In verses 11 through 14, they run into a couple of women uh, who know the exact itinerary of Samuel. Look in verse 11. As they were climbing the hill to the city, they found some young women coming out to draw water and asked if the seer is here. By the way, this is like a... Uh, it's sort of a hat tip and a, and a look back to when Abraham sent his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac. And so he goes on here. The women answered, yes, he is ahead of you. Hurry, he just now entered the city because there's a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes to the high place to eat. The people won't eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. After that, the guests can come up and eat. Go immediately. You can find him now. So they went up toward the city. And now in verse 15, the author does something really interesting. He stops the action of the story. And he does what we call a flashback. It says, now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, at this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Notice he didn't say a man of Benjamin is going to come. This is the Lord's direction here. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, now this is the present tense during that day, there's the man that I told you about. He will govern my people. So there's no coincidence here. The very first person that Saul and his servant run into is Samuel. Verse 18, Saul approached Samuel in the city gate and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? The seer is a prophet. I am the seer, Samuel answered. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. When I send you off in the morning, I'll tell you everything that's in your heart. As for the donkeys that wandered away from you uh, three days ago, don't worry about them because they've been found. Who said anything about donkeys? Saul and the servant didn't. 
Donkeys hadn't even been brought up yet. Samuel was so confident of the Lord's orchestrating every one of these fine details that he even set aside a particular piece of meat at a particular place at the table. In the beginning of chapter 10, Samuel anoints Saul. And to prove to Saul that all of this is legit, he lets him in on uh, a little bit of the future. Three things will happen to Saul. Uh, first, in, in verse 2, two men are going to tell him the status of the donkeys. Second, in verse 3, he's going to meet three men at the Oak of uh, Tabor uh, that will give him some bread. And third, in verse 5, he's going to come across a whole herd of prophets. And he's going to end up becoming one of them. He's going to be able to prophesy. And sure enough, as Saul begins his journey home, all of these things come to pass, verified by the community. Look in verse 11. Everyone who knew him previously saw him prophesy with the prophets and asked each other, what's happened with the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man who was from there asked, and who is their father? As a result is Saul among the prophets became a popular saying. Now, I can anticipate questions that come in your mind here. And say, come on, pastor. You know, obviously the, the, the text is saying that all of these things were directed by God in order to bring about his purposes of redemption so that the next king could come and eventually Jesus. But um, isn't it a, a bit of a stretch to say that this is how God works overall? I mean, aren't these just extraordinary circumstances? To which I would reply, no, I don't think it's too far out of a stretch to say that God's providence and his sovereignty is not limited to the big things of redemptive history. This particular story is illustrating what is true of God 100% of the time. Think about it. This was a very important story in Scripture. Israel is getting their very first king. It sets the stage for everything that's going to happen. King David coming, and eventually the king of kings, Jesus himself. And how does God get the ball rolling? By directing a few donkeys to go and get lost. There's a little bit of humor that's involved there. And if God can, uh, can uh, chart the course of history by providentially directing a couple of donkeys to go get lost, then he can be intimately involved in every detail of your life. And I would propose to you that's actually a good thing. I don't know about you, but if... If all of my life were up to me, I would have screwed it up years ago. In fact, I'm not even sure that I would be alive right now if all of the details of my life were up to me. But as it is, he has sovereignly brought every minute of every day of my life all the way up to this point. His sovereignty has brought me to this particular place, in this particular role, in this particular personality, with this particular skill set, 
all of which came from him. And he did the very same for you. You are not an accident. It is not by chance that you are sitting in here today. And what that means is that your life is not an unredeemable train wreck, but that it is a piece of the puzzle that God is using to form his church and to make you whole and complete in him. And right now, you might not be in a place where that you're particularly happy to be in. But we have to see that God has not left you. And that God will not forsake you. He is working all the details out for you to find your joy in Him. And our job is to simply get on board with Him and what He's doing. It is to stop moving in the opposite direction that he is going and for us to turn around and start moving toward him in faith. And as we are going to see here in the next few weeks is that Saul was not a good leader, but God was using him. All of his quirks and all of his sin to bring about the king who was after his own heart, David, who would in turn point to the ultimate king, Jesus, the one whom God the Father is working out every detail in history, past, present, and future, to point towards and be restored in. So we ought to see God in the details. And third and finally, we should worship the true king. Worship the true king. There's a very subtle yet crucial aspect to these two chapters that uh, we could easily miss. And I would venture to say that they might even be the most important. They say the devil's in the details, but not in Scripture. And here we see life in the details. Remember, the people had rejected God as their king and looked for a human to be a king. And God indeed did tell Samuel to fulfill their request, go find a king. But in these chapters, notice that God is not willing to give up the throne. In the flashback, back in chapter 9, notice it says, At this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over Israel. There is a very specific word in Hebrew that you can use for king, melech. And that is not the word that the author uses here. That word ruler means literally ruler or leader or more appropriately in this particular text, the word prince. Samuel uses the same language with that word in chapter 10, verse 1, when he says, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler or prince over his inheritance? This is a very subtle yet important uh, idea that we need to look at. That at the end of the day, God is still on the throne. 
You can choose to put other kings in his place. You can worship other things all you want. You can be like the Israelites in, in chapter 8, verse 6, when they said, put a king over us that has nothing to do with God, and we can go on and bow down to these idols, and at the end of the day, we can claim with them at, in chapter 10, verse 24, long live the king and be completely wrong. At the end of the day, the Lord is king. And his name is Jesus. And unlike Saul, he didn't look the part. In fact, Isaiah 53 verse 2 says this of him. He uh, didn't have an impressive form. He didn't have majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. This is the kind of guy that might be up on the podium with other candidates for something. You would say, he just doesn't look like a leader. Ladies, this might be a guy that he might pass over for somebody else. Yet, he isn't a coward. He isn't paralyzed by fear. He doesn't skirt his responsibilities. Power has not gone to his head. He is the king par excellence. And, not, and not because of what he wasn't, but because of what he was and did. Jesus, the very prince of heaven, left his throne in order to take on the form of a human servant. No other king has ever ascended the throne so that he can be the servant of his subjects, but yet Jesus did. He lived perfectly so that we, as imperfect as we are, could have his perfection attributed to us. He bled and died on the cross so that we who have set a pretender king on the throne of our hearts can be forgiven and have rightful leadership over our lives. He rose from the dead to provide victory over death so that those who claim long live King Jesus can live long with him. By his grace, through faith, we can sing with the psalmist in Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Friends, worship a better king. Worship now and forever only King Jesus. Long live the king. Let's pray.